sometimes you think about, like, particularly when your own kids, you think, I wonder what they're going to grow up to be like. You know, what, what are they going to do with their life? We tend to start thinking about this. And the older they get, will they, will they find the right work? Will they be successful in what they do? Um, the older I get, the less I am concerned about those things. And the more I am concerned about whether or not they'll keep hold of who they are. Like, like who, who they are uh, in the deepest parts of their soul. That they'll know beyond a shadow of a doubt whose they are. It's hard. Uh, the world makes it very, very hard for a Christian um, to hang on to their essential identity. It's easy, to, it's easy to lose your grip on, right? Even as adults, the simplest things can cause us to get distracted from who we are and be concerned about, well, I don't even know how to put it. Like, like here's an example of a super dumb, simple thing. This morning, <laughs> we were... Uh, Downtownish, my daughter-in-law's running in a half marathon, and we were going to try to intersect her at a certain place. And so I got there super early, and I went to take my glasses off, and I cut my nose with my own fingernail, and it it pretty much ruined my day because <laughs> I started thinking I'm going to go out there in about two minutes and cheer on my daughter-in-law, and I can't just think, get the, I'm holding my nose with a, with a paper towel. <laughs> you can do it. Go. I'm thinking, what? And then I'm thinking, I got to go preach in a minute, and I can't get this thing to stop bleeding. Am I going to put a Band-Aid on my nose? Am I going to stand there? with what? I got here, I finally stopped bleeding, and I was literally thinking, I wonder if anybody has any makeup they could put on there so they can't see that blood. This is all that was going on in my head for a half an hour because I had a little blemish on my nose, completely losing track of who I am. We're looking at this letter, wonderful letter from uh, the Apostle Paul. Um, and... Um, we had a guest speaker at our residency, uh, a leadership residency this last weekend, Thursday evening, Dr. Joe Price, um, a scholar, a biblical scholar in many different uh, ways. And he summarized not just Ephesians, but really the message of Paul throughout his letters. You, you wouldn't even imagine that you could summarize it, but Dr. Price n nailed it. If you read the letters of Paul, you're going to find him answering this question or uh, working on this statement. And this is what Dr. Price said. Paul is saying everywhere and anywhere, be who you are. All of his letters are saying to the, to the church, to the people of God, to those who are following Jesus, be who you are. Which is to say, know who you are and live. Know who you are and live. A good friend of mine, Poppy Thomas, said this years and years ago, and it's never left me. He said, Mike, I think the main thing that we need to do in this life is immerse ourselves in the scriptures and improvise. 
Immerse yourself in the scriptures, which means essentially what? To saturate ourselves, to saturate yourself with who Jesus is and who Jesus is in you and who Jesus says you are. To saturate ourselves in the revelations of God about who you are and about the world that we live in. And then give life your best shot from that identity. Because it is just giving it your best shot. You're destined to fail at what God's called you to do. You've de you're destined to fail to live out your identity perfectly. There's no way to do that. Because there is no actual book to tell you exactly how to do it. The Bible does not do that as much as we would like it to tell us exactly what to do. It's an improvisation. There's never been a you before. There's never been a you in the circumstances of your life. And there's never been a you with the particular calling that God has on your life in those circumstances for the good of the world. But there is a you. There is a clear and solid identity that is yours out of which we improvise in this life. It'd be the, it would seem like, wouldn't it seem like the easiest thing in the world to uh, be who you are? <laughs> it seems like a passive thing. Someone says, be who you are. You think, yeah, well, that, that should be pretty easy. But what I find, and, and maybe what you find when you look in the mirror, is that we are often unsure about who we are. Or we are sure, but it's because we've bought into someone else's view of who we are. Does that make sense? We're a little unsure about who we are, or we are sure about who we are, but it's not who we are. It's what someone else has said we are. It could be bad or it could be good, right? Someone, you might have the overwhelming sense of who you are based on uh, something that somebody said or the way that somebody treats you and you would view yourself as a failure or stupid or weak or insufficient or unsalvageable or a dumpster fire, right? You, there, there, there may be an identity that you live with that is a result of somebody else's view of you or it could be good. You, you, you might have an identity that's, that's built on uh, a positive reinforcement in your world. You're a successful businessman or woman. You're, you're a great dad or mom. You're a sensitive soul, a caring person, an awesome athlete, a dynamic leader. It should be no um, surprise that the questions that are that are circulating and being processed in our culture with regard to gender uh, exist because it is the core of our identity as we know it, as core as it gets from an earthly point of view, our gender. It should be no surprise that people are either confused about that or trying to control it. We want to know our identity. And we have an innate sense that if we knew who we were, or if we were comfortable with who we are, then we would be some sort of happy, some sort of content. 
And so when we're not content, when we're not happy, and we're not happy with the identity that others are thrusting upon us, or happy with what we see in the mirror, we go about trying to change it, to change our identity in any way that we can. And as technology advances, we have more and more means to change our identity at deeper and deeper levels, if you will. The human psyche is going to try to find an identity to quell the debilitating anxieties and disappointments that we live with about who we are. The truth of the matter is, none of that have anything to do with the core identity of a human being. We, 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 it, it isn't your gender that defines you most at the core. It isn't your success or your failure, the bad view or the good view. We tend to think if it's a good view, then we can just we can live with that identity. Well, that's just that's just a mirage. If you happen to be privileged enough to uh, 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 just enjoying in your life a good identity, a good identity from others, you're successful, you know, whatever it is. We, we, we get lulled to sleep and think that, that's, that, that is our identity. And it's comfortable because it's good, but it's not. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. If you're not immersed in Scripture, if you're not immersed in Jesus, if you're not immersed in the gospel, you are only immersed in a culture that's designed to define you. Can you feel that? Can you feel the culture trying to define who you are and then confine you to it and then dine off of you? <laughs> to define you and confine you and then dine off of you? <laughs> the world's most enticing reward in exchange for your loyalties and your energies is an identity. The powers that be, the authorities and the rulers and, and all that is, the hierarchical structures and the spaces in which we run want your loyalty, they want your financing, they want your energies, and they will give you an identity and a belonging in return for those things. But then you're trapped. You can't leave. Otherwise, you lose your identity. It's a trap. You could say they own you. This is what Paul is referring to when he talks about the powers in the world. Almost always has everything to do with our identity. Comes from all sorts of different places. It can come from your work. It can come from your, your religion. It can come from politics. It can come from family. It can come from your nation. All of the constructs of the world are trying to define you and are where we go to find our identity. Right? When you're a workaholic, you're, you're, you're finding your identity in your work. And you can see how those kinds of 
constructs and those kinds of sort of false, if you will, identities warp us, cause us to behave and do and commit to, and they even make us blind, right? We, we will turn a blind eye in a space where we're getting identity and belonging when something's wrong with that system or wrong with that tribe. We will ignore it because we, don't, we can't afford for it to be wrong or to be torn down because that's where I find my identity. I'm going on and on here. What am I trying to say? It's very important for us to understand and believe and embrace our God-gifted identity. Because here's the thing. You, you are going to be in one of two spaces in this lifetime. You're going to spend your life searching for an identity or holding on to one or living from an identity. You're either going to be in search of an identity or gripping on to something that you found, or you're going to live from an identity. You're going to be stuck in an endless cycle of disappointing pursuits, or you're going to be flourishing on the foundation of unshakable truth about who you are. Are you with me? Okay, a couple things uh, that we can get through this morning from Ephesians chapter 4 and this whole idea of being who you are. I want to talk about, um, and we, may, we might not get through all this. I want to talk about your king. Now, I want to talk about, or Paul's rather. I'm going to talk about what Paul's talking about. And he's talking about your king. He's talking about your calling. He's talking about your community. And he's talking about your, believe it or not, charisma. Four C's. King. <laughs> calling. Community. And Charisma. All right, Ephesians 4, chapter 1. I finished with this verse last week. We're going to start with it this week. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You can feel Paul calling you into that identity and asking you to live it out. Be who you are. Two things. Paul's calling us to be content in two things. The fact that God, uh, with regard to God, your life is his. Your life is his, and your life is of him. So it's his, and it's, and it's of him. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Your life is his. That concept is comforting from one angle, right? To be, to be, to be one of God's, to be in the family. To be his is to be loved and protected. But in this case, what we're talking about as a prisoner of the Lord is he's saying it's not just that. It's, it's more along the lines of he owns you. He's yours. He's, he's your king. You think in terms of Jesus being a savior and a king, we're very comfortable with him being our savior, our protector, our security for our, our eternal assurance, but we're not as comfortable with him being our king. Because to be our king means to turn over control of who's in charge of your life. To make Jesus king means we have to get out of that seat and put him in it. But God, Paul's saying here, look, I am a prisoner for the Lord. Paul's writing from prison, but it's not that prison that has him, has his service, that has his loyalties. It is his king. He's, I'm, a, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. He, he is my king. He is the one who 
manages my life. He is the one who orchestrates it and tells me uh, what it is I am to do and who, who I am. It comes from him. It's, an, it's actually a very natural and unnatural inclination for us to defer authority and control. We, we, would rather, we would rather keep it. To give someone else authority in our life is, in a sense, to choose an enslavement. And Paul's saying, yeah, but that is the construct. He is the king. We are no longer enslaved, he says, to the world. Essentially, you're enslaved to Jesus. We give our servitude to him. You know, when people were baptized and, you know, back in the ancient times, they were being baptized into service or enslavement to another owner. To be baptized is to give him ownership of our life. We're oftentimes at our core a little too proud for that. But the humble, the ones who are willing to defer to the one who created them, the one who knows them, the one who loves them, understand it's really the beginning of life. It's an acknowledgement of our deepest and purest identity. You, you cannot find your core identity apart from God being central, being king, being authority in it. That's how we were created. That's where we are intended to be. It's the beginning of our deepest sense of purpose and our belonging and our fulfillment. I go back to Isaiah 6 so often. Isaiah 6, the, the calling of Isaiah into prophecy. It starts like this. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, because this is what happened, the king died. Their king died. The king of Israel died, which means, oh, no, my, my life and my livelihood are in jeopardy. It is the king who builds the walls. It is the king who orchestrates the militia. It is the king who ensures the economy. It is the king who puts protection in your life, the right kind of king. When the king dies, it's an exposure. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a vulnerability. And Isaiah says, in the year that the king Uzziah died, what he, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seating on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Before he had that vision, Isaiah, you can presume, was anxious and concerned and worried. I'm in, I'm in trouble. And then he has a vision. He realized, oh, oh, wait. Yeah, the earthly king died, but that didn't dethrone the king. And he remembered and he saw in a vision the, the, the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the entire temple. Like, oh, this hasn't changed. This earthly king is not the ultimate king. He is, and he is firmly seated on his throne. Isaiah's response is what it should be. He says, woe to me, I'm, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips. We see the Lord God in all of his splendor and we are immediately, you know, overwhelmed by that and also overwhelmed by my lack of purpose and need. I shouldn't be in there. I shouldn't be, this is, the, the difference is too great. I'm ruined, he, he says, I'm unclean. The Lord is high and lifted up. We are humble and bowed down. But then what happens? God isn't, isn't looking at Isaiah as one who is 
uh, necessarily in need of being, he, he should be bowed down, but he doesn't, the Lord doesn't treat Isaiah as one who is useless because of the differential in, in uh, being unholy. He says, uh, whom shall I send? God has something to do from his place of honor and authority. He has something he wants to do, and he's looking, and he says, who should I send? And Isaiah, from his humble, bowed position, says, uh, I, here I am, send me, which God does. We, we, when we put God in his rightful place, which puts us in our rightful place, it is then that we understand who we are and what it is we are to do for God. It takes a great deal of humility to allow Jesus to be your king, but it is the beginning of understanding who you are and what you are to do. If you have any hope of being who you are, it starts right here and remembering God is, God is our king. Um, I don't know if you're following um, the Chosen series much. Um, some do, some don't. Uh, Dallas Jenkins, uh, the producer and director and writer of that. Um, uh, I find him to be wonderfully sincere, at least the way he comes through uh, the venues that I see him. But I, I, we, my wife pointed me to this short little interview that he had, or a little piece of an interview. Um, and the interviewer asked him, are you making Jesus cool? Are you making Jesus cool? And you could argue that he is. Like he is presenting Jesus in a way that is relevant and understandable and compelling and inspiring. All that Jesus is. And I think, boy, the answer to this question is complex. But what Dallas said blew me away. And his, uh, the respect I had for him just went up multitudes. He said, oh, I don't make Jesus who he is. Jesus makes who he is who he is. I'm, I'm, I'm not responsible for making Jesus anything. He is who he is. I think any other answer than that would suggest that the person saw Jesus as their subject matter, right? Which in a sense, he is his subject matter. But if you got out of balance, you would begin to see that Jesus is someone that he is controlling, that he is identifying. And in Dallas, without, without missing a beat, you could sense the humility in his mind. The right stature, the right place of Jesus is not somebody that he's manipulating, but someone that is over him, that has authority in his life, that defines who he is. He doesn't define who that is. Dallas' answer was spot on in the very kind of things we're talking about here. He understood where he is no matter how successful or famous he has become, he didn't lose sight of the fact that he has nothing to do with who Jesus is. Jesus is who he is. Jesus has everything to do with who I am. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You, that he may exalt you. I think that's part of the beauty of that. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. He will, he will ensure your identity and bring you to the place where you are living 
out who you are to be in the purposes that you have been called to. Humble yourself under the kingship of God, and he will raise you up. He will identify you. He will build you, and he will send you. Context number one is Jesus King. Is God the center? Is he the authority of your life? Without that, you cannot know and live out of who you are because that's where you were built to be. Secondly, just from that same verse, I urge you to live a, worthy, a life worthy of the calling you have received. Who we are to be out of who we are is also of God. Your life is his and your life is of him. We mentioned this last week that Paul, writing from prison, is a great illustration for us and a reminder that God has so much more to do than getting you out of the prison that is yours, whatever it happens to be, whatever difficulty, pain, struggle, hardship, trauma that you live with that you cannot escape is not beyond the control of God. He's either orchestrated it for your good or he's allowed it for your good and his glory in some way. And our calling maybe first and foremost, needs to be, we need to be reminded that God just isn't calling us to do something. He's calling us, in many cases, to do it from where we are. <laughs> I could almost say almost always. You, are, you may not want to be where you are, and one day you might not be where you are, but God is intent to use you in all of who you are right now where you are. You don't have to hold your breath till you clean up your life or get yourself out of where you are. God wants to use you here, now. You know, Amanda Knox, this young lady who was uh, wrongfully um, uh, convicted and tried uh, an exchange, an American exchange student in Italy. Her roommate was murdered. Her and her boyfriend or fiance maybe were um, um, convicted of that crime, and she spent four years in jail until the, she was exonerated. Two years into that process, after they finally went to trial, like she was convicted, she got put in jail, she, a year later they started the trial, and a year later after that they convicted them, two years in. They thought for sure there's no way this is going to work out. I'm going to go home. I'm going to get out of this horrific, uh, you know, exchange process and go home. And they convicted her. So she went back to jail. And within a, a day or two of that conviction and the understanding that this isn't going to end after two years, it's going to end after 26 years was the, was the conviction. This is what happened to her. She writes about this. She had an epiphany. That's what she calls it. She was sweeping the floors in the prison where she had just been convicted to stay for the next 24 years because two was already done. This is what she says. I was not, as I had assumed for my first two years of trial and imprisonment, waiting to get my life back. I was not some lost tourist waiting to go home. I was a prisoner, and prison was my home. I thought I was in limbo, awkwardly positioned between my life, the life I should have been living, and someone else's life, the life of a murderer, but I wasn't. I never had been. 
the conviction, the sentence, the prison cell. This was my life. There was no life I should have been living. There was only my life, this life, unfolding before me. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful? She suddenly realized, I'm not in limbo here. This, as wrong as it is, as unwelcome as it is, this is my life. To know who we are is to know who we are in relation to the king, God, Jesus. The second is to know that he is in control of the calling and the whereabouts of our life. And he wants us to find purpose in it right there. Maybe a couple things that I would hope would warm your heart. Living out your calling doesn't require you to escape the difficulties and the pain that your life is. Your king is also your creator. He knows better than anyone else what the best and most productive and most fulfilling path is for your life. Being who you are begins with knowing whose you are and trusting he knows what's best for you. To be a Christian is to be content under God's mighty hand and the circumstances that he's orchestrated and permitted. Are you with me? That's just two things. So let me, let me hit this next one a little bit, and then we'll just close and cover some more later. Or no. Is that a not like, is that good? Can you get stuff to think about there for a week? <clears throat> yeah. I'm going to skip these other things and just jump to verse 14. And I'll just remind you of this um, instead of going into it. A second part of your identity, which we'll cover again later, is that you are part of a community. It's, a, it's, a, it's not unique to identity. Almost every identity includes belonging. So does the Christian one. So we need to talk about how the people that you are conjoined with uh, as believers, is critical to your identity, right? Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. You know that phrase? So we're going to talk about community a little bit. And then I want to talk to you about how God has imbued you with his own spirit for what he's asking you to do. That's the charismatic part, the charisma. But then in verse 14, I just want to, maybe I'll say this every time we come back to this. This is huge. Verse 14, after going through these things, some of which we've gone through here, <laughs> He says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. How much do I have to teach you on that? Not very much really, right? You think about the world that we live in today. And could anything be more true? And apparently, it's not new. All through history, those who have searching for their identity in places other than in Christ, other than with God in, as king, and other than through the, the direction of that king, are like little infants, confused, uncertain infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful keeping. It's, it's going on all around us. When the world is pushing you around and pushing you down, 
You have forgotten who you are. And you're trying to find it. When the world's pushing you around or pushing you down, you have forgotten who you are. You've forgotten whose you are. You've forgotten with whom you belong. And you've forgotten for what purpose he has built you. So let me just leave you this this morning. Don't spend another minute of your life searching for an identity. You have one as a believer, as one who has accepted the body broken for you, the blood shed for you, the forgiveness that is yours, the reconciliation that is assured forever. You have one. Don't spend another minute of your life searching for an identity. Determine now in your heart to learn and live from the identity that has been given to you by God. It's actually a lifelong exercise to do. It's not something that happens instantaneously, but we can instantaneously commit to learning and living out of that identity, to immerse ourselves in the things of God, in the scriptures, in the community, and improvise. God, it is from the deepest recesses of our heart we understand and feel in a very poignant way the pursuit of identity and how important it is to us to be somebody. And it is a challenging thought to accept the reality that it is your identity that matters most and that that identity from the world's point of view is a waste of time a waste of a life. By faith, we know that this life is more than what we see, more than what we experience, more than what we can touch and taste and hear. That you have something much bigger going on. This life is a vapor. It doesn't matter what anybody else has to say about who I am. It only matters who you say that I am who you, what works you call me to, God, help us to be a church that is rooted securely, individually and corporately identified with your son and him alone. Don't allow us, God, to be defined by the buildings that we have, the places that we go, the things that we do. You've called us to some beautiful things that we hope are glorifying to you and good for the community, but they are not who we are. If they become who we are, we are no longer your church. We are no longer salty. We are no longer light. We're just another entity in the world trying to give people identity in superficial ways. Don't let us be that, God. Help us be yours and up to your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.